All right, all right, everybody. Welcome to episode 59, Clinical Grade. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's up, Yosef, my man? Oh, wow. Clinical Grade. That is the term right there. That, is, that, that sounds is, cool as hell, right? Clinical that, Grade. That is the hot topic right now. Uh, so the, the reason why that's important is uh, a lot of efforts are going uh, now into getting stem cells into the clinic, and this is one of the... Probably the first step, right? Wouldn't you say this right. is point yep. A? So in order to get, exactly, to get stem cells to be used in, on and in patients, we need clinical grade stem cells. So almost like FDA approved or the terms GMP, maybe we'll hear good manufacturing practice from our guest today. Dr. Tilo Kunat from uh, Edinburgh, and he's a, and then he's a stem cell biologist in the neuro field like us, but he had a recent paper about um, looking at clinical grade stem cells, pluripotent stem cells, and describing what they found in them, you know, what they look like. And we've learned some really interesting things from the interview. Um, we tried to have him explain a little bit for more for the lay audience what a clinical grade stem cell is, why we need that, and such. I think it was a cool interview, something different than we normally do. Yeah, and uh, really important in work for the future and translating stem cells into the clinic. And some of these lines are publicly available, so he sort of characterized them for you, and it's sort of a baseline uh, starting point uh, moving forward because, as you know, uh, mutations can accumulate over time as we culture these stem cells. So uh, maybe this will be, you know, the first report, the first, you know, health check on the stem cell lines and uh, should be valuable moving forward. What do you think? It definitely will be for sure. Um, and again, we'll, we'll have them explain more and it, the, the paper, we'll put the link up. It's in scientific reports. So, okay, let's, let's get down to the business. We are the stem cell podcast. Uh, we are the official podcast of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, the ISSCR. Check them out at isscr.org. Their big meeting, um, is in, uh, June in San Fran, 2016, ISCR meeting. Registration opens up in December. I think it's the 15th, yo. So it's like next week or like, you know, it'll be already open. Um, the podcast will be there. Yos and I go for the science and we also go for the podcast. If, you know, that's, that's, you know, one of the, if not the big, uh, stem cell meeting of the year. So everybody should make sure they register for that. Um, we are presented by Thermo Fisher, as always, um, and you can go to our website, stemcellpodcast.com, click on their banner to find out more about their products. They had their 24-hour stem cells last week, Yost, which, is a, which was really good, and we're going to do a little bit of a recap on the next episode, episode 60, so everybody um, stay tuned for that. Um, we will be in the World Stem Cell St- Summit next week. We fly out on Wednesday, um, so thank you to the organizers for having us come down. We'll be in booth number 14, so I'm on Periscope right now. Everyone listening to me, however many of those are, and on Twitter, we'll put it out, on Facebook, everywhere. We'll be at 14, uh, the booth, so please come on, stop by, uh, get interviewed, tell us your stem cell story, um, and you know maybe we'll put you on the recap show. Looking forward to that, yo. It's always fun to get out and go away, so Atlanta's a fun place. We'll, uh, you know, we'll... Do some stem cells, do some interviews, and uh, do some food, I'm sure. Yes, definitely. So that'll be fun. We have um, stem cell chat. Please go on and sign up for stem cell chat. We can't get the discussion really going until we get a bunch of people on there. So sign up for free at stemcellchat.com and continue the discussion from what you hear on the podcast, on papers, on, on, uh, on guests, on interviews, and all these things. Go sign up there. And then, um, again, you can sign up for the newsletter at stemcellpodcast.com, and they'll email you every time an episode's out. We'll email you the links to all the papers and all everything and summed up. So 
Um, I think with that, let's uh, sign off here, and I will turn it over to Yos for the beginning of the hashtag Sci Roundup. Science Roundup. Yos, my man, go ahead. So there was a science paper that came out last week where uh, they created a metallic lead lattice of hair-thin pipes that is now the lightest solid ever created. Can you imagine creating the lightest solid ever? So this thing is 99. The lightest Solid, Solid, yeah. So it's 99.9% air and 100 times lighter than styrofoam, which is like, it's hard to even imagine that. So it, this ultra-weight, uh, lightweight materials like this are widely used in like thermal... Which, yeah, is not, not possible. Yeah, it's used in uh, thermal insulation and to dampen sounds, which I could use right now in my apartment complex, uh, and vibrations and shocks. So uh, they can also serve as scaffolds for battery electrodes and catalytic systems. So the researchers began uh, with a liquid photopolymer, which is a molecule that changes its properties properties when exposed to light and they shine patterns of ultraviolet light on this photopolymer which generated a three-dimensional lattice and then coated the structure with a thin film of metal in this case it was nickel phosphorus alloy and materials uh this sort of materials unlike uh aerogels which were the previous lightweight materials um these materials use uh has have low density metallic lattices that are orderly structures unlike the random structures of aerogels and this uh leads to higher levels of stiffness strength and conductivity which is probably why this wound up in science magazine so uh you can find that there we'll link to it cool uh physiological medicine journal showing uh these scientists use MRI to show that frequent users of high-potency cannabis is linked to significantly higher mean diffusivity, which is a marker of damage in white matter when you're doing MRI scans in the corpus callosum uh, when compared to low-potency cannabis users that use it like infrequently. So uh, expect to see more studies like that in the future. You can find that in physiological medicine. Uh, there was a PLOS one study showing. By the that- way, real quick, yo, real mm-hmm. quick, I've seen a lot of stuff coming out from the government um, for researching uh, cannabis use, like a lot, which tells me that they're getting ready for legislation and want to really make sure that it's not killing people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So we got to keep our eye on that. Anyway, go ahead. Well, yeah, especially now that it's legal in two states. So uh, moving on. Uh, PLOS-1, the Public Library of Science, a study showing that salicylic acid, which is the primary breakdown component of aspirin, uh, binds to gap DH. You remember the gap DHs. Uh, and keeps it from moving into the nucleus where it can trigger cell death under oxidative stress. So this is similar to uh, the action of drugs like Depranil, which is an anti-Parkinson's drug uh, that blocks uh, gap DH entry into the nucleus. So it appears that uh, aspirin does this as well. And also found that salicylic acid from Chinese medical herb, the Chinese medical herb licorice, uh, and lab synthesized uh, derivatives are 40 times, 40 to 70 times more potent at binding gap DH and, uh, and thus preventing more cell deaths. So, uh, you know, take your daily aspirin, especially if you're older. Um, it could help uh, prevent cell death uh, and specifically gap DH entry into the nucleus. Uh, there was a nature communication study showing that when a doctor Get, when a donor 
gets adi- an adequate amount of sleep. The success rate of a bone marrow uh, transplant to treat cancer dramatically increases. So, especially wow, so crazy. Essentially, the navigational ability of hematopoietic stem cells to integrate into the bone marrow of the host is uh, is better when the donor gets a full night's sleep. So you can find that in Nature Communications. Uh, there was a cell stem cell study. I believe this was Lee Rubin's lab uh, looking at spinal muscular atrophy caused by mutations in the SMN1 gene. And so they compared RNA sequencing re- results from IPS cell, uh, induced polypropylene stem cell-derived motor neurons, and found that SMA patient-specific hyperactivation of ER stress or endoplasmic reticulum stress pathways. Um, and spe- spe- specifically, they found that abnormal splicing of DNA JC10 uh, gene. So uh, they then gave an ER stress inhibitor called guana bends in an SMA mutant mice and found that it helped preserve spinal cord motor neurons in the in their mutant mouse. So you can find that in cell stem cell using uh, iPS cells to uh, identify this pathway in dying motor neurons. Um, cool. Yeah, Lee Rubin's on it, man. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but Aqua Bounty's GMO, uh, genetically modified or organized organism, sorry, uh, salmon, was approved by the FDA last week. Uh, the fish are triploid and therefore are sterile, so there are no apparent threat to wild fish and they have sustained growth uh they have sustained period of growth hormone production gene uh from the pacific chinook salmon so that leads to faster growth um and so this is 16 to 18 months to become adult as opposed to three years for uh you know adult market size fish so it cuts it in half essentially dude where dude where are you at with genetically modified like or food like that like are you all right with that you're gonna eat that fish or what's going on i'm pro labeling but at the same time if you're gonna make golden rice to get beta carotene to save people from going blind in africa i'm for that you know so i i think it's a double-edged sword but i'm pro labeling in all cases uh so that's where i stand how about you i don't know man I really don't know yet. I, I guess I'll have to face the decision when I see it on the shelf. Something about it weirds me out. The fact that you're accelerating the development of the fish. Yeah. But you know what I mean? I, I agree. At least give me a label. Anyway, go ahead. It reminds me of Attack of the Clones when they made all the Boba, Boba Fets <laughs> and they increased the speed of the growth. So, anyhow. Uh, so there was a stem cells and development study showing that uh, mouse embryonic stem cells in space exhibit reduced differentiation and regenerative capacity, but form embryoid bodies normally. So those aren't affected in space. So the microgravity environment may affect uh, astronaut stem cell populations. So if you're an astronaut, that's something to be worried about. Uh, so you can find that in stem cells <laughs> in development. Uh, there was an American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology study showing that cranberry extract pills lower urinary tract infections by 50% in women who have a catheter in place while undergoing gynecological surgery. This has, uh, this is similar to antibiotic rates. So, you know, people talk about using too many antibiotics. Yep. Uh, this, uh, cranberry, uh, ex- extract, uh, performed just as well. So, um, 
women who undergo this surgery have as much as 64% chance of developing UTIs after the catheter is removed. So uh, these pills, which have about eight ounces serving of cranberry juice, are high in antioxidants and may therefore help uh, prevent this sort of infection. So uh, keep that in mind if you're having a catheter. Uh, removed. And then uh, there were two science papers. I just have to focus on this real quick uh, that showed that certain types of gut microbes, me and the gut microbes again, in mice can boost the anti-tumor effects of cancer immunotherapy. So these two papers in science, there were two groups that used the same strain of mice at two different mouse facilities known to harbor different commensal bacteria in the gastrointestinal tracts of the mice. So uh, both sets of mice were implanted with melanoma tumors, and one group of mice had a more robust T-cell response. And so when they housed the strains of mice together, in uh, the differences went away between the two sets of mice. So they then did a fecal transplant and showed this resulted in a better anti-tumor T-cell response. So they think that the G, uh, these commensalants are priming the immune system. Wow. Uh, so they then tested anti-PDL1 therapy and found that this worked best after the fecal transplant. And they found that Bifidobacterium species was linked to a better response and that dendritic cells uh, in this group were better at stimulating tumor-specific T cells. So, uh, And then the second group found similar results with sarcoma melanomas, and, sarcomas, melanomas, and colorectal tumors with immunotherapy involving anti-CTLA Four and found that it worked best with the presence of uh, the Bacteriodes species. Uh, and so they added T- memory T-cells targeting these gut microbes, and this had the same effect, suggesting that all this is mediated by an immune response to the commensalate microbes. So these two science papers are, they're, again, they're in science for a reason, so uh, showing that... Dude, you're all about those commensalates, that commensalates, man. You, you love that you stuff. You know I'm into that. that uh, I know you are, dude. That gut bacteria. It's, that gut. it's like it's the all other, about that gut. It's, it's like the gut. other human. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was a nature neuroscience study examining the effects of two amyloid beta antibodies on neuronal activity in mice. They found that the antibodies led to an increase in neuronal dysfunction. So bapinuzumib... Uh, uh, which was previously failed in human trials, you know, these anti-A-beta uh, antibodies. Um, so it failed in human trials, but it works, I guess, well in mice. So that uh, mice that overexpress beta amyloid display neuronal hyperactivity in response to antibodies, uh, regardless of the stage of the disease. And this did not happen in wild-type mice. So this has to do something with the interaction of the drug with these A-beta plaques, uh, which would explain a lot. I mean, this it turns out like all these anti-A-beta uh, treatments are not really working, which makes me wonder about the whole A beta hypothesis. I know. It's, I know. I'm, I'm leaning more towards tau now, but we'll see. Who knows? Uh, I've heard uh, some compelling arguments for things like vitamin B and all sorts of stuff. So who knows what's going on with Alzheimer's? Unless it's presenilin, I don't think there's a real clear answer. Presenilin mutation or APOE. 
uh, it's it's still ninety percent of the time it's a black box. We have no yeah, idea what's going on. So unfortunately, yeah. So uh, that's out there, and I'll end it there. How about you on the uh, cool. more stem Let cell me get side? Some stem cell stuff. Uh, just before I get into that, though, I just saw this. Um, did you see this? I don't know. Is this? I thought it first was an Onion article. You know those like satirical articles, but it said I don't think it is. It says that Monsanto is to be put on trial for crimes against nature and humanity. So, you know Monsanto, obviously. Yeah, yeah, People yeah. call it the devil. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Monsanto uh, says that the Organic Consumers Association and a bunch of others here and millions against Monsanto, joined by dozens of global food, farming, and environmental groups, announced last week they will put Monsanto, so this is a U.S.-based transnational corporation, on trial for crimes against nature and humanity and ecocide in The Hague, Netherlands, next year on World Food Day. Um, says ecocide. this is a long time overdue for a global citizen's... Tr- Tribu- tribunal? How do you say that? Tribunal? Tribunal, to put, I like that. To put Monsanto on trial for crimes against humanity and the environment. And they go and they list um, Monsanto has pushed GMOs in order to collect royalties from poor farmers, trapping them in unpayable debt, pushing them to suicide. Wow, that's a bit strong. And then it says, it gives you a list of the stuff they've done. None of the, and, this, and I'm going to move quickly into stem cells, but do people understand like the Roundup, whole thing with Roundup, weed control, how like Roundup, which is the most widely used herbicide or weed, you can go buy it at Lowe's and you spray it on all your weeds, right? Mm-hmm. In the world, and it's a, it's a health toxin. I mean, it's it's carcinogen, designated carcinogen. So basically, they produce uh, soybean and corn seeds that are that are refractory or resistant to Roundup, mm-hmm. and then they can. So basically, they can just spray the hell out of all their crops for weeds, and it won't hurt the crop you're going to consume so you're consuming all of this roundup pretty much and that's how they do it it's nice yeah. it's, a, it's a nice business model they i never heard on. that term ecocide yeah i never heard that either damn ecocide you're committing ecocide all right anyway so um you know monsanto monsanto they're not going anywhere uh let's say okay so the first thing is this gene editing thing so we talked about gene editing um you know it's really chemical scissors if you will to edit or change dna so you have a bad mutation we can gene edit it we can cut it out and put new dna in so your dna is now normal and this obviously is great has great potential but it also can be um you know uh, have weird kind of sci-fi implications so they had this big summit apparently recently so uh, on it and they brought scientists and experts together, and they met in Washington, D.C. last week. And after reviewing the science and other issues, they offered a temporary green light on the research, which is good. Uh, and they said on December 3rd, they said it, that research on human gene editing is needed, and so it should proceed. However, the big stop sign, the, the experts gave one big exception, and this was that any cells edited in a lab may not be used to establish a pregnancy. So, in other words, no designer babies here. So, um, you know, meaning that researchers could not fix genetic diseases before a baby was born. So, no germline editing. So, you can't you can't edit something and then ha- put it into a woman's womb to have her give birth to it. Um, that's the, where they're drawing the line right now, and I understand that. It's you know? a good line so, to draw. So, so that so they're but they're allowing it to proceed. So, they're that that's good because you don't want to halt that research. It's really really promising, and hopefully one day we'll be able to do that uh, effectively. But before we can come up with guidelines, this is what they they reach. So that that was cool. There's a review in stem cell reports. It's actually a meeting report. I find it to be interesting for anyone in the field. It's called creating patient specific neural cells for the in vitro study of brain disorders. 
a lot, a lot of big names on the line. I'm going to read some. These are significant to Yosef and probably to uh, uh, many others out there. Um, Kristen Brennan is the first author. Uh, Marchetto, giving you last names. Oliver Bristol, um, Ajimidi Kayakas, who's now at, who was at Allen Brain, who's now at um, uh, Novartis. Uh, Madeline Lancaster, uh, Legat Livesey, Ron Mackay, Sally Temple, Lee Rubin, Hanjon Songs, Lorenz Studer, Pierre Vanderhagen, Fred Gage, Rudy Yanish, blah, blah, blah. So there's like, you know, big names on this line. And what they did with this is a meeting. And what they said that there was the key limitation of, the, of this field is difficulty in accurately defining self, self state. Um, so they met to, to discuss the current challenges for creating a mean, meaningful patient-specific in vitro models or in-the-dish models to study brain disorders. Um, and so um, this a piece, really, an opinion piece, outlines their view on the current state of pluripotent stem cell-based disease modeling and discuss what we, what we see to be the critical objectives that must be addressed collectively as the field. So it's really timely, actually, because we're making a ton of these patient-specific lines, Yost, right? But what do you do with them? You know, how do you, how do you create, how do you then model the disease in the dish? How do you make Alzheimer's disease in the dish? How do you make mm-hmm. Parkinson's disease in the dish? And so this is really what this opinion piece was on. And there's some really great minds here and contributing. So uh, for anyone in that field, go check out that article. It's pretty cool. Um, all right. So do you know that you can grow stem cells faster on seaweed? I didn't know this. No. But according to this, you can do that. So this is alginate, which we know comes from stem cells, uh, forms a kind of supporting skeleton in the cell wall of certain kinds of algae. And so these scientists use these uh, gel-like mass from Chilean seaweed as a substrate for stem cells. So um, scientists at the Fraunhofer Institute of Biomedical Engineering in Solzbach have identified seaweed from Chile as a as a particular Chile, not Chile. Chile, yeah. Chile as a particularly efficient source of nutrients for the expansion of pluripotent stem cells. So over the past few years they have developed and controlled a documented production process for alginate, the seaweed supporting structure. And this process encompasses everything from harvesting the seaweed on Chilean beaches and in the seeds of Chile to to uh, importing the granulated and dry seaweed to manufacturing the alginate and then using it in cell culture. Dude, I want that job. I want to harvest seaweed in the Chilean beaches <laughs> for my stem cell growth. It probably um, sounds better than it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Um, but anyway, it's two seaweed species that grow on the coast of Chile um, that, 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 that they get their material from. So this was uh, interesting, I thought, and anytime you can get seaweed involved. Do you like seaweed salad? If you go get seaweed, I do, I do, actually. I do. I put a little too. lemon on there. It gets stuck it's in good. your teeth a little bit, but yeah. it's good. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, this is the next one. Stem cell gene therapy restores immune system response. So, you know, new and rare diseases are discovered daily, and unfortunately that means that it, you know, takes time to find the best methods of treatment. So there's this one disease known as X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency, or SCID-X1, mm. and it's saying it might now be treatable thanks to new findings, and these will be presented at this meeting in Orlando. So researchers at the NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, found that gene therapy may be able to rebuild the immune systems of older children, adolescents, and young adults who suffer from this disease. Uh, it's, and it's primarily found in males caused by this mutation, uh, and it inhibits the proper growth of the development of immune cells. Um, and they studied five SCID-X1 patients between 7 and 24 who were being treated with a combination of gene therapy and low-dose chemo. And they had these, these patients previously obtained stem cell transplants from a parent and had worsening immune systems. So to treat them, they removed stem cells from the patient's bone marrow and used this lentiviral vector to, to put a normal 
just like we talked about, a normal IL-2 our gene into the cells. And after each round of chemo, the cells were put back into their bone marrow to help the stem cells develop and start producing new blood cells. And they found that this was uh, displayed significant improvements in their immunity and clinical statuses. Um, but one, so that was two. One of the patients died due to a pre-existing lung damage, um, and um, the three other patients are continually showing improvements. So, so this is cool. This is we, we've heard about this approach before, right? You know, changing if it's in a blood lineage or something. We talk, this is what they do in HIV, right? Yes, with CXCR4, they yeah, yeah. kind of re-adjust the mutation and reconstitute the immune system. So this one's IL2R. This is uh, IL2R. Yep. Mm, nice. Yep. So that was cool. Um, okay, uh, Nature Biotech, a, a qPCR scorecard quantifies the differentiation potential of human pluripotent stem cells. Alec Meisner's group. You got to love those um, scorecards. He's got a new scorecard. I mean, you know, I guess it's the same idea, but it's an easier format. So um, you got pluripotent cells, and you want to know if they can differentiate or turn into everything. And if you're making a ton of lines, uh, you want an easy way to know uh, whether or not you know, if, if the differentiation efficiency is good of these lines. So how do you do that? They re, they report in an improved version of the assay based on qPCR. Their other one was like a nano string. I think it was it was a little more expensive. Hmm. Uh, and this is a more quantitative approach. So they provide an in-depth character, characterization of the revised signature panel, which is commercially available by um, Thermo Fisher, uh, Tackman. Nice. I was going to say, so, I suspect um, a kit. Product placement, Thermo Fisher. Yep. And yeah. uh, our approach, they say our approach can be extended beyond stem cell applications to characterize and assess the utility of other cell types. So Alex Meiser keeps getting them scorecards. Um, this is really cool. Probably difficult for me to explain. Um, this is a uh, Montana State University and Stanford. Ancient, ancient viral molecules are essential for human development. I think this was published in Nature. Um, and so um, Nature Genetics says that this... We have this what's what we once called junk DNA because we didn't believe it was you know doesn't encode or correlate to biological function. Um, well, they're saying you might want to reconsider calling it junk. Um, this, there's really the non-coding RNA molecules, if you will, are incredibly important. So these are top stem cell scientists at these universities shown that certain non-coding RNA molecules, which are basically genetic remnants of ancient virus, play a critical role. Mark Tomashima is loving this right now. <laughs> play a critical role in balancing decisions in human development, namely pluripotency, which we all know is the state of stem cell state very early um, that enables you know uh, human development to, to basically innate progress. So this is Rene Para. Uh, also head up stem cell research labs, senior author. Um, and they say this research is transforming our fundamental understanding of these molecules, these non-coding RNAs, and their role in how stem cells impact a whole array of human development um, and, and timing. And it's saying this is a really cool statement. We're starting to accumulate evidence that these viral sequences, which originally may have threatened the survi their survival, the survival of our species, were actually co-opted by our genomes for their own benefit. So in this manner, they may even contribute species-specific characteristics and fundamental spell processes, even in humans. That's kind of cool. So um, this is in Nature Genetics. Um, so go check that out if you're interested. And then I think, let me see, lastly here, this is a new paper saying researchers have grown retinal nerve cells in the lab. This is out of John Hopkins. Uh, the researchers have developed a method to efficiently turn human stem cells into retinal ganglion cells, type of nerve cells located within the retina that basically transmit the signals from eye to the brain. It says here that um, our work could not lead could lead not only to better understanding of the biology of the optic nerve, but 
a cell better cell based human model that could be used to discover drugs that stop or treat blinding blinding conditions. Uh, this was published in uh, scientific reports, and they use CRISPR-Cas9 and insert uh, um, insert a fluorescent protein gene into the stem cell's DNA, um, and it would be expressed only if the gene was also expressed. And they were looking for this BRIN3B. It's expressed in mature retinal ganglion cells, so that was their readout. So they were able to read out on these cells by them turning red, and then they knew that they could uh, you know optimize uh, a protocol. Wow! So, so there's, I like that approach. I didn't it's easy know th- to see color turning on and such. I didn't know so there was a Brin three B. I always knew Brin three A and like the red nucleus. I didn't yeah, know there was Brin three B. Pow four F two. Awesome! Cool. See, so whenever there's an A, there's a B. Is yeah. that true? Right? If you have A, you have to have B. With like LMX A one A and. <laughs> LMX one B. I don't know if that means there's a C. Anyway, yeah. um, so that's what I got for the uh, roundup. So uh, we can we can close out the Psy roundup hashtag Psy roundup, and we can move into the uh, interview portion of the show. Um, the interview portion of the show is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, and Stem, Stem Cell Technologies Yoast wants us to talk about their "This Is Why It's Hot" media. That's what <laughs> I call it. That's what you call it. This is why it's hot. Yeah, they don't call it that. They call it stem diff mesoderm induction media or MIM, but I call it this is why it's hot because, <laughs> because of that song, it's MIMS. MIMS. Um, okay, so basically it's a media, uh, culture media you add to your pluripotent stem cells and it turns them into mesoderm. It's really that simple. I've used it in the lab. It's really great, actually. You don't have to worry about any sort of oh, protocol. Oh, so this is MIMS add. and not NIMS, not the neuronal induction. No, media. it's not this, NIMS. It's oh, MIMS. It's um, MIMS. And uh, we talked about other... They have a bunch of different medias you could just add and differentiate. And this is just one of their um, one in their arsenal. So what they're going to do for the listeners out there, you can get a free sample if you go to stemcell.com backslash... Is it backslash or is it just slash? Uh, just say slash. <laughs> yeah, I never know the difference, but I'm pretty sure everybody knows the slash I'm talking about. Stemcell.com slash MIM, M-I-M. This is why it's hot. And uh, <laughs> go get your free sample of uh, that today. All right, Yos, let's get on to the interview. Let's bring Tilo on. So for uh, episode 59, let me give a brief intro um, to our guest today. Uh, our guest is Dr. Tilo Kunat, who is a group leader at the MRC Center for Regenerative Medicine, RegenMed, at University of Edinburgh. Um, so quickly, he obtained a PhD from the University of Toronto, uh, which is a city I love, by the way, uh, and did postdoctor work at the University of Edinburgh before really starting his lab in 2007. And so Tilo is interested in using pluripotent stem cells, we talk about that all the time on the show, uh, to model um, neurodegenerative disease, something that Yosef and I um, kind of have a, a love for as well, such as Parkinson's. And then how you can use these models to really help discover new therapies for, for patients. So uh, it is our pleasure to welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast, uh, Tilo Kunat. Tilo, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for the introduction. And hello, Yos. So, yeah, so as a quick introduction, I, as you mentioned, I did my PhD in Toronto. I was with uh, Janet Rossent, and I, uh, I started out working on the early embryo and trophoblast stem cells. Uh, Tia cells and also yolk sac stem cells that I named uh, Zen cells. So uh, graduating in 2003, I went to Austin Smith's lab in, in the UK, Institute for Stem Cell Research, and then I was moving now to pluripotent cells, working on mouse Tia cells, looking at early decisions to exit pluripotency and become a neural tissue, neurectoderm. And then when I started my lab in 2007 uh, at the MRC Center for Regenerative Medicine, I really then 
turned my focus towards Parkinson's disease and trying to uh, use my stem cell background to address uh, Parkinson's problems. And uh, we were one of the first to make um, Parkinson's disease IPS cells from a triplication synuclein family in Iowa that uh, we published uh, 2011. But uh, I think I'm on the show because of the recent publication. We just did a lot of work on uh, clinical grade ESL lines that we'll, we'll speak about as we go on, I, I, I assume. And this is where we're, where we're at now. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah. familiar with Tilo's work uh, from the Parkinson's field, but I didn't realize uh, you. Did you say you actually named the uh, Zen cells, the the extra embryonic endoderm stem cells? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. Named them. I, I named them myself. I was trying to come up with different names. So trophoblast stem cells. I was on the paper with Satoshi Tanaka. So uh, internally, we sometimes call them. Uh, Tilo Satoshi cells, but uh, these were two stem cells, the trophoblast stem cells, because they couldn't make every lineage of the trophoblast. But the Zen cells, when we had made them, I I was working in them and characterizing them. All of our chimeras were were going to the uh, parietal endoderm, so it didn't quite have the stem cell feel that the trophoblast stem cell had. So so we didn't... uh, Think we could I could use the name stem cells for the Zen cells or, or for these cells at the time, so we didn't want to put the word stem in it. But I thought extra endoderm Zen sounds pretty cool. Yeah, Xen. <laughs> so we I just put it in the paper, and it's just it's taken. You know, you can see the, the Zen cell lineage, the TSL lineage, and the ESL lineage coming from the trophoblast. But no, yeah, we did spend a few weeks thinking of the name, but uh, <laughs> eventually uh, landed on that. So now I have to ask you, why Zen? Are you? Do you meditate, or is something about the cells, or something about the cells that were very relaxing, or something? They were not. They were very stressful. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't make visceral endoderm, which is what we wanted them to make, so they weren't relaxing. But uh, X, yeah, X for extra embryonic, and then EN for endoderm, just to differentiate them from the definitive endoderm. Ah, uh-huh, very cool. Okay. X- I've, I've always wanted to name something, Yos. You know, yeah. it's like in the science world, you discover a gene, you can name it some ridiculous name like Sonic Hedgehog or, yeah. you know, Bazooka or something like that. But uh, Numb. Those days are gone, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't do that anymore. Anyway, um, all right, so, you know, tell tell us this. Maybe talk to our audience a little bit about this. Yosef and I, and I guess a lot of people in the audience on the show, understand that we use stem cells to create models. I mean, in some aspect, right, we're making a cell that might be dying in a disease. In our case, it's a neural cell or a nervous system cell, brain cell. Eventually, we want to put these these cells into patients. So what we're learning, though, along because as basic research, is just you can't just do something you do on the bench or at small scale and then take that and put it into a human. There's a lot of other um, regulations and other things you have to make sure, one of which which we really don't hear too much about a lot. Maybe, Yosef, you know, being around Mark Tomashima and these guys doing this kind of work, getting ready to go to the clinic, you hear more than I do. Talk to us a little bit about what you need. When we talk about this clinical grade, what do you need uh, these cells to do, uh, to behave like, or what are, the, what are the kind of characteristics that are different when I'm just studying stem cells rather than getting ready to put them into people? Yeah, so it's really, really good question. And I think all of the, the, the earlier comments you're making about disease modeling and using them to uh, understand mechanisms in, in drugs, you know, we don't need clinical grade for that at all. So all that work uh, is not impacted on where the cells are grown or, or how they were derived. So clinical grade and the characteristics of clinical grade cells are, are essentially no different than research grade, right? They, they do need to be um, you know, they need to be fine, you know, they need to be normal cells, but you can have perfectly fine research grade cells, but they couldn't get to clinic. And really, it's, it's about uh, documentation and traceability, 
which is which is you know not that interesting to work on scientifically. Certainly, you know, it would uh, do the head in of a lot of uh, basic scientists. You know, they don't want to work on on this area of of regulation. But something essentially is clinical grade because the regulators and the people that derived it um, has have, have said it is, if you know what I mean. Mm. Right. So it's almost right. a legal thing. Uh, so um, and and everything that touches that cell in theory should be traceable. You should be able to identify every medium that it's grown in. It's it's better to have uh, fully defined mediums, but you know. There's lots of hoops to jump through, and it depends on which country you're in, um, whether you can get something to be clinical grade or not. And some of the ESL lines that were research grade, you know, so H9, for example, can be re-derived and now classified as clinical grade. So there's lots of hoops in, in oh, different countries. Oh, really? Yeah, different That's countries will have different definitions of what clinical grade means. So... Yeah, so it's not an easy answer, and uh, even uh, you know some people that might claim their cell is is line is clinical grade, it may not be. Mm. Right, so it's a very very gray area. What exactly? You, what exactly do you mean by re-derived? Like an H nine line could be re-derived. What What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's uh, I, I, <laughs> that's a very good question. So I think what they did um, was they you know because it was derived on mouse embryonic fibroblasts and you know um, not fully defined conditions in media. So I think what they do is they uh, they get a colony, uh, take a colony of it, and then from the expansion of that colony, everything is done in an environment that is completely traceable, mm. and everything is defined and everything is documented. So that from the derivation or the re-derivation, more or less a subcloning, from the subcloning of that line onwards. And all the descendants of the you know passages beyond that, these are now considered clinical grade. Okay, I thought you meant they went back to the original H nine inner cell mass or something. So uh, no, 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 no. It's a sub. It's a sort of subcloning, right? So you know yeah, when yeah. you do a targeting or something, you pick a clone. Yeah. This will be just uh, a subclone into a, maybe a clinical grade facility, a GMP facility, and then expanded. So a number of lines have been rederived, and about three of them in the UK have been rederived in such a manner where it was research grade in the initial early days, but then. Has now been what they call rederived or re-established as clinical grade. So, so these have been done, and you know, and they can pass regulator, and they will eventually be used in people. But the big difference, uh, the big push in the last ten years in the UK is to is to make clinical grade cell lines from the blastocysts. Mm, so, one, I, so there's no question about its its nature. Right? It's yeah. been tracked from right, the right. embryo collection stage. Right. So that is rare, much rare in the US. I think. So you know, I don't know many examples of clinical grade lines from the blastocyst. I think there are some, but okay. quickly, let me just clarify that, Yosef. So when 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 you mean uh, when when Tilo means from the blastocyst, that means from the beginning. So right when the line is derived from that very early embryo, um, you know, it would be clinical grade from that point on. I'm right, just great. I just want to make sure some some of, a lot of our audience knows blastocysts and some of them don't. And I've been trying to do Let's, Yosef, but my, I, I've been trying to be more conscious about. Yosef always corrects me. I use uh, abbreviations a lot, Tilo, you know, like H-E-S or S-C-N-T. And Yosef yeah. always uh, spells it out for me because I always forget. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Yosef. I know so, you were trying to say uh, something. Man. Yeah, no. Let's just give a little better background because we're uh, based here in the States. So just starting from the beginning, the MRC is your equivalent, uh, the UK equivalent of the NIH. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's so, very similar to the NIH. It's so, government, the government funding that we all apply for grants and we all hope yes. that we get them. So in 2005, uh, they decided very, I think this, they, this was really, you know, a lot of forethought went into this, uh, it, it, to, 
develop lines to essentially treat uh, disease. And um, so what, I, I guess in your paper, you, you had cited a reference where they said uh, if you have about 150 uh, lines, you can uh, essentially cover all like 90 percent of humanity. Uh, can, you, can you talk about well, that? I wouldn't say humanity. So it depends. uh uh, which country you live in? So that that that, that quote, so that reference was to a paper um, by uh, immunologists in Cambridge. So 150 lines, I said, might cover 90 percent of the UK population. But what it should have said, and which is hard to write in a paper, is it would cover 90 uh, percent uh, of the white UK population. Yes. <laughs> so, so it depends on the uh, it depends on the uh, the ethnic diversity of. The country, etc. So in the U.S., you'd, you know, you can imagine it's very, very difficult. And in Japan, it's actually not that difficult to cover the entire population based on a, maybe 80 or 90 uh, cell lines because the the, uh, the the ethnicity is not as broad as it is in the United States or even in the you know, U.K. and in London, right? So, so that that is an issue. So you would want a lot of lines, but we do mention that. Um, so you know, ESLs will probably not be the way to cover that because now that you can make iPSLs. You can you can you can derive iPSLs from from individuals that are homozygous for these HLA antigens, so so-called universal donors, and then you can make iPSLs from these individuals. So to find all that correct number of ESLs would be really a, a difficult task. Mm. But uh, but the reason we're happy that we have a lot of ESL lines, and, and you're correct, in 2005, you know there was no ESL therapy. You know, we don't know if they were going to become useful, but the MRC or, or NIH equivalent thought maybe, maybe they'll become useful. So let's invest. So if there is a cell therapy in the future, let's at least have a, a collection of lines that can immediately be then moved to clinical use without having to re-derive or, or jump through all sorts of hurdles and try to convince the regulators. You know, we want to make them clinical grade from time zero. Mm. So even the in vitro fertilization clinics that provided the blastocysts were, were registered in such a way that the, the embryos could be then used to derive a cell line that could then eventually be used in a, in a clinical setting. And another big advantage we have in the UK, or, or disadvantage is how you look at it, is that we have a, a public healthcare system. Right, mm. so it's a very, uh, uh, you know, it's it's state funded, so you know it has costs and benefits that uh, you know you can't get very expensive therapies on this on the system, but because it's all uh, nationwide, the therapy comes online and the MRC is invested on in it, then you know you can have quite large access uh, to the population, but it has to be of a reasonable cost, right? So it has to be not too expensive, or it won't get onto our healthcare system. So, but they did had some foresight and then we thought let's invest we don't know if they're going to become useful but but it was it was you know you know i think as as we're you know, reaching uh, uh the next decade uh, i think we will see more and more cell therapies and as yosef knows in, in, in new york you know lorenz suter is pushing quite hard to to get cell therapy for parkinson's uh into patients so you know that will be followed by other uh cell therapies we we hope and to have these lines available is you know it's just fantastic so you so, had a pool of 50 GMP lines, and you, uh, for this paper... Good, good manufacturing practice. Yes, uh-huh, yes, you, yes, thank you. You did get me. Uh, so in this scientific <laughs> reports paper, you uh, narrowed it down from, I guess, uh, 50 down to 25. Uh, well, 50 is the number of clinical-grade lines we can identify throughout the world. So some were derived in Israel... Uh, some are in the U.S., some are in Singapore. So the U.K. collection is high, is 38. And we didn't narrow them down. It was it was the lines we could get our hands on. Ah. <laughs> so 
it was uh, so some of them, although they're derived and reported, they're not as easy to actually physically get your hands on the pellets. And some of them are actually they are characteristically abnormal. So um, the the, the uh, provider has told us, so oh, this line has just gone off. So we didn't carry a type or, or snip those ones. So I see. so a few of them, three or four of them, I think, are just have a, a, a carry type that's not good. Mm. But some of them we just couldn't access. They were too low passage. The provider couldn't um, couldn't. Uh, uh, couldn't um, you know give us a, a vial, so it was just pra- practicality. We got our hands on twenty five, which is still a fair number. You no, know, that, no, it definitely is. So then your your attempt was to characterize them in some aspect. So describe to everybody what approach you took, and uh, you know explain what you hope to get out of the study. Yeah, so it was a, it was a bit of a new area for us. So you know we're used to growing and differentiating cells. So the approach was quite simple. So so we got uh, genomic DNA isolation from these large number of, of lines. And then we used uh, uh, an array platform that uh, looks at single nucleotide polymorphisms. These are these are unique um, um, polymorphisms across the human population that that are different, of course, in different individuals. But they're very useful for seeing deletions of chromosomes, duplications of chrome, uh, bits of chromosome. Um, useful for uh, home, runs of homozygosity. So it's like doing a karyotype, but a very high resolution. Um, so we we did do much more than 25, so we were reporting 25 arrays, but we did um, re-snip at different passages, so we did about 80 arrays in total, so we used uh, a, a cost-effective array, which is of a certain density, so we could see things that were about um, 70 kilobases uh, uh, deletions or duplications. So we just, were, you know, so there's a lot of informatics that uh, started, uh, that we needed to do, and the first alarming thing to us was that we were seeing uh, more than half the lines had quite big deletions and duplications. So we were like, oh, you know, this, we're a bit, like, worried. <laughs> we were seeing a 300, mega, uh, 300 kilobase deletion or, uh, you know, sometimes a one megabase duplication. So we were like, you know, what's going on here? You know, that, uh, that many lines can't be bad, right? Mm. So then we, again, had to dig in the literature. And, and what surprised us is that, that people, <laughs> just people walking around, can have quite large deletions and duplications in their genome, right? So this is before going into the study. I didn't realize it's quite normal. Like 70% of people, so maybe one of the three of us chatting, or sorry, two out of the three of us chatting, could have a 100 kilobase deletion or duplication on one of our chromosomes. So it's common. So I didn't realize that before going into the study. I realize we all have small CMVs, but... So it's common to have chunks of DNA missing from our genome. Now, I have a question. Is that something in somatic cells and not necessarily in our uh, germ cells, i.e. sperm and eggs? No, in the germline. No, in the germline. In the germline. Not in somatic cells. In the germline. That's what's surprising. So you you inherit these large duplications and deletions from your parents. Wow. Wow, and and the, the, so I guess what is the perfect genome? I mean, what are we comparing it to? If everybody, well, has that's, it? That's, yeah, that's that's what we try to say that uh, at the end, you know, that there is no perfect genome. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that you know, we have to be wary that, that as a human population, um, of course, we're genetically diverse, but these large changes that we've been detecting that at first worried us, um, we realized, wait a second, these are just present in one of the two parents. Mm. that made the blastocyst, right? So we go through the paper saying, yes, we can see these big uh, deletions and duplications, and yes, they contain genes sometimes, Mm. but should we be worried about them? Should they be excluded from clinical use? Our conclusion in the paper is no. 
you shouldn't be worried about them because this is what you know just is just a reflection of human diversity and and you know the papers are out there the literature is out there but people you know it's hard to read these cnv papers and and in in journals that you know that you might not read as a stem cell biologist but but uh but you know they're out there that you know 70 percent of us have these huge deletions and duplications and that's you know that's most of us right yeah yeah. um so um but uh and the other thing that we say is that they're usually benign so of course you can have these deletions and duplications and they cause disease. So you know I work on the triplication synuclein locus and that is a CMV. It's a huge CMV. It's a triplication and you know causes Parkinson's. So so these dynamic changes in the genome they can cause disease, but most of the time they don't. Right? Mm. You can get a heterozygous deletion of uh, cadherin eight, 18, and you know there's nothing you know that. You know, there's nothing phenotypically wrong with the individual, so therefore the cells, the ESL line, should be fine and fit for, for clinical use. Was the, the conclusion that we're, we're trying. So, so as we get into the whole genome sequencing of these cell lines, you know, we're going to find stuff, right? We're going to find mutations, and then if we're very, very stringent about our our criteria, you know, no cell line won't be able to pass a genetic test to go into the clinic. So we, yeah. we try to put this uh, uh, this temper, uh, this uh, this uh, sort of um, level of uh, um, so don't put the level of scrutiny too high when you're genetically looking at, at cells. At the end of the day, what needs to be done is the cells need to be differentiated, and you need to test them in a safety model of tumor formation, and that's the end point that will say a cell line is, is safe or not. So a cell product is safe or not. So, so ideally, you'd want the genetics to be fine at the beginning. And if you have a really bad genetic alteration, then, of course, you don't want to move forward. So this is where the SNP array comes in use. But at the end of the day, if you have a... So one of the clinical trials in Japan, the, the age-related macular degeneration, they said they stopped it because they found, uh, uh, by whole genome sequencing, uh, a cancer-causing mutation that was, was reported in one paper, something like that. It was a very, very minor finding that essentially halted a clinical trial, which is just... Which is just crazy it's just over the top right yeah. and i think it came out later and masao takahashi published in nature biotechnology that the real reason that they uh that they halted the clinical trial was because it wasn't going to be financially feasible to make an ips line for each person for personalized therapy so i think i think there was too much press about this one point mutation and and the real reason was more i think logistical and financial mm. so yeah i'm a bit worried that even our paper may, may make people scared about some of the cell lines that have these large cmvs because we do mention nine cell lines don't have any large mm. cmvs nine of them are don't we can't detect huge um deletions or 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 duplications but it doesn't mean that the other lines that do have them are bad now, did, did, did you test before and after? Like, did they uh, mutations accumulate over the course of your study? So some did, yeah. So the ones that we reported, um, we tested at different passages and they were stable. And some, we got, you know, really early passage 10 and there was, this CMV was always there. But there's a very famous CMV on chromosome 20, Q21, that is a duplication that's been published in a number of papers that we did see in a few lines at high passage. So this is a CMV that uh, seems to happen in labs, and it seems to happen in cells at high passage if they're not handled well. And it's been published by Peter Andrews that it has an anti-apoptotic gene in this region of the, of the chromosome 20, and essentially it gives a growth advantage. And we did see that in four out of the 25 cell lines at high passage. 
so I, I was just wondering about your culture conditions. Uh, I see that you used uh, e Essential Eight Media from Life Tech, uh, sponsor of the show, by the way. Um, Did it? Good. Yeah, <laughs> good and, medium. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, Laminin Twenty Five Two One. So, five Two One. Yes, uh, which I've used before. Um, it's a good substrate. But uh, how are you passaging? Was it single cell? Non, obviously non feeder, because that's what Essential Eight is developed for. Um, uh, yes. so yeah. We, Go ahead. Yeah, we passage, passage the cells with. Uh, essentially, we just use EDTA and and always as small clumps. So mm-hmm. we don't do single cell passaging. We do do some single cell seeding for differentiations, but uh, we. So we use either essential eight, um, uh, laminin five two one. We really like. Um, we also use um, um, this Milteni IPS brew is sometimes but Central 8 works perfectly fine it's great and this Laminate 521 from Biolaminate is, is our only subs, our only substrate that we use now it's very very reliable and um, so yeah, we do passages clumps and and uh, with EDTA and this is exactly uh, it's a very good question because we think some of the passaging methods um, are can lead to these, for example, chromosome twenty microduplication. So, yeah, and and usually, if you look in the supplemental of um, one of the big international stem cell papers, you can see that a lot of the chromosomally abnormal lines do seem to cluster to labs. Hmm. So yeah. it's some techniques in some labs, you know. Um, I think well, they don't they don't all cluster to you know particular labs. So every every lab will probably have some of them. They seem to be more um, increased in some labs, and it may be the technique that they use. But you know, some people think if you passage an ESL line long enough, they're, they're gonna no matter what your technique is, they're gonna acquire something. Well, great. I'm so, go, uh, go ahead, Chris. Sorry, I was just gonna say so to everybody. Who, you know, we, you, you guys can we publish the link. You guys can go uh, check out the story and, and continue reading uh, inside different reports uh, and learn exactly more of the details of what was published, and we're going to have to have you come back on at some point to talk about the uh, the neural stuff, the uh, neurodegeneration stuff, Parkinson's and things like that. Uh, Yosef and I have no problems having uh, neuro <laughs> neuroscientists using stem cells come on and talk about their progress, so we'll, we'll get that to another time. But we have to, of course, give the uh, listeners their funny stories. So uh, we'd like to know if you would like to share with our audience something uh, funny that has happened to you in the lab, outside the lab, during your, you know, training or wherever what do you what do you got for the audience okay okay so i i think you may publish the images i'm going to speak about but it was during my phd days and at the very beginning we were talking about zen cells and um yeah so as part of the characterization it was a brand new cell line we wanted to look at it uh, through different techniques so uh, i started to do uh, scanning electron microscopy of them and they were very very shiny cells on the microscope and sure enough uh uh, they were very covered in microvilli, but every now and then some of these cells had this huge projection, huge cytoplasmic <laughs> uh, membrane-bound projection that I didn't, I didn't, never seen before. But some of the images I captured really did look like uh, male genitalia, and uh, and I, I did, I did email you some. I don't know if you're going to put them on your website, but uh, but they don't pop- look, they don't look like male genitalia. I'm almost convinced they might actually be someone's <laughs> genitalia that you, you got on SEM. I mean, it is, it is a crazy, crazy. Crazy picture. I'll, we're definitely going to put them up, Yos, and put them because oh, it is it is just incredible. Please do embarrass myself. We, so we published the the uh, paper in 2005 in development. So we do have some of these projections in that paper, but not the images that I sent you. Um, we thought it might be a bit too X-rated for for development. <laughs> but but the, the, the amazing thing, I took those pictures in the morning. I remember 
And, uh, and then in the, uh, and I was just amazed at these projections. And then in the afternoon, my good friend Yojo Yamanaka was taking pictures of the early embryo around five and a half days, looking at the visceral endoderm. And his images, and we published, this is published in the paper, also had, the AVE, the anterior visceral endoderm, also had these huge um, projections that were na- didn't have any microvilli on them. So, so we did publish these embryo, these embryo images beside the cell images. So we think it is not just a weird artifact of the cell culture, but something that the embryo actually makes. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting you're going to put them up. So I'm glad that they're going to get some exposure to, to, to the world because yeah. they've just been hiding yeah. on my laptop. Yeah. Oh, these are great. Yo, so you got to be careful in the morning. That's when you get the projection sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? So, so um, <laughs> oh, man, Tito so, uh, was great. All right. Listen, so, Tilo, Tilo thank you so uh, much. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. And just real All quick, well. I want to ask, are, are those uh, cells available through Roslyn, uh, uh, the, the, the lines that you characterized? The clinical grade lines are available through different sources. So uh, two of them are available through rosin cells, and I think Mark Tomashima may have may have two of them. The the Sheffield ones are, are available directly from Sheffield, but there is also a UK uh, stem cell bank. But the King's College lines, there's a number of King's College lines that are are on the NIH registry, right? So the King's College lines, there's a oh, fair okay. number of them, and the, if you go to the NIH.gov uh, stem cell website, they're there, and they can be. Either uh, they may be available in the U.S., but certainly through King's College, they they can also send them. So so they send them worldwide. They're certainly not uh, just for UK use. Okay, great, great. So check them out. Uh, Thanks for coming on, and uh, it's been enlightening discussion. Thank you, Tim. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Take care. All right, right, there you have it. Clinical grade. That was really interesting, dude. Yeah, so important. Like, you know, it was a great, what you said was so great. Like, how do you know what's normal? Yeah. Like, what, who's normal? Because we're always comparing it to a control, you know, but like, is that normal? I, I mean, because everything's deleted. There's all these yeah. things, like, you know. I guess we're just regressing to the mean. Uh, so, yeah. I guess. Very <laughs> cool, though. Who's got the perfect genome? I, I'm sure uh, there's a bunch of people who like to think they have it, but. I'm pretty sure I don't. So don't use <laughs> Mine. Um, yeah. All right, so Yosef has normally Yosef gives me options for a rant, and then I periscope him giving me like six or seven, and my response is normally like, oh, "We're definitely doing that one," and we choose. But today, Yosef vetoed that, and he just said, "This is one we're doing." I think he's hot on it. So uh, go ahead, Yosef. Speaking let's, of let's, hot, let's yeah. It. So there's this global warming climate summit, the COP conference, the conference of parties i think it is and it's in paris and it's right after the attack so there's that but uh one thing that i noticed in american media which frustrates the heck out of me is that they're talking about oh they're they're debating two to three uh degrees of warming and you hear two degrees that's to most americans this is american specific rant that doesn't sound like much it's like okay 98 degrees is a normal human you go to a hundred degree fever okay, I could survive that. But no, we're talking about Celsius. So that's actually like twice as much. So when you're talking about two to three degrees increase in the planet's temperature, we're talking about five or six degrees Fahrenheit and nobody get no, you know, if if you get a 103 degree fever, you're gonna, you know, you gotta see it. You may be dying. Like there's a big difference between two, two degrees Celsius and two degrees Fahrenheit. There's a and, big, big time difference. No one in the media ever points this out. Like they no. never say Fahrenheit. They always no. say, and who in America uses Celsius for anything? <laughs> it's listen. For- I, listen. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make a statement here, and I, I will bet you that 
this is my this could be a contributing factor as to why the average American doesn't think we have a problem with global warming. Yeah. Because if you were reading that, they're like one and a half degrees, really, dude? Like, who gives it? Like, who cares? Yeah. But it's not. Five degrees is a huge swing. You know how I know this too? Being a parent, when you take your kid's temperature, if you if it's on Celsius, it's not a big deal, right? You're like, oh yeah, it's not a big deal. Like you know, like you get a, a swing of a degree Celsius. It's a big swing in a temperature. Yeah. You know. And you don't like so like I agree with you. It's they should be if we have a different system when they're reporting it, they should report it in the in the unit that our system uses. I've never seen it done in America uh, where the major news outlet has has reported it in terms of Fahrenheit. It's always in Celsius, and I think that's part of the reason why there's so many apathetic American response. Even though we, you know, we're five percent of the population, we cause twenty five percent of the warming. But you know, most people are indifferent because they are. Oh, it's just one degree warmer, and no, that's this is in Celsius. It's totally so. Different. So their cutoff. What is it? Two right now? Uh, they want I it think to be one and a half. Three degrees Celsius, which is I'm going to say almost six degrees Fahrenheit. So we're talking about your temperature going from 98 degrees to 103 degree fever. That's what we're trying to avoid. And no, that's what is it really that much? Two is about like four. It's almost double, right? Yeah, it's almost double. So, uh, so they're trying to keep it at about two point five to survive. I think is the slogan. Uh, so that would be about five degrees. So if Jeez, you figure which is a lot, yeah, if you figure that you know an average day going from seventy five degrees to eighty degrees, that's, that's a, a big, big difference. Yeah, to yeah. Me. So that's a noticeable difference. Uh, yeah. So that's what frustrates the crap out Are of me. Are they talking so. about this during this uh, summit? <laughs> You know, this is a topic, how they report the units. I, I wish they would because, you know, language matters, especially when they call things like a death tax and that makes a bigger difference than when you call it the inheritance tax or whatever. Like language matters. And here I feel like this is this is a clear case where language really makes a big difference in how people think of, you know, something that's going to affect us all at some point. So, um that's it. That's my rant. Yeah, Sticking man, I hear it. you. I agree with that. That's a timely rant, Yos. Yeah, Very timely. Yes. So everybody, uh, go go write your representative and ask them to report things in Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll be next week. We'll be recording live. We'll be in. Uh, we'll be in Atlanta. You can. You'll be checking us out if you're on social media. We're going to be twi- tweeting and facebooking and periscoping. So make sure you got your devices warmed up for us. And remember, from um, you know, we're presented by Thermo Fisher, and you guys can access 24 hours of stem cells until March 2016. So you still got time to register. You can get all of that good science um, and go get that. This is why it's hot media. Yos, my man, I will see you on the airplane right next yeah, week. Yes, see this you week. soon, Atlanta. Here we come, Atlanta. All, all right, right, man. Catch you on 60, everybody. Mm-hmm.